0: Our Father, we realize that apart from the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, that we cannot perceive truth correctly. Because first we're creatures, and therefore we're limited. And you dwell in the high and lofty place. But we also know that you've promised that you also dwell with them of a contrite and lowly spirit. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would make our spirits receptive to the great wonders of your being. That we could focus upon who and what you are, and away from many of the details that seem to consume us on a day-by-day basis in our lives. We ask this through the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Just to start off tonight by way of review, I want to take you to, if you look in your notes, to page four, and the last paragraph in page four. The reason I want to take you there is because, while this may seem very abstract to you now, much of what this introductory chapter is doing is setting something up. So when we finally get into the text of Genesis chapter one, we will tonight, uh, you'll begin to see how this kind of comes together. My desire in this class is to show the coherence of scripture that God speaks coherently in the Scriptures. He speaks comprehensively. He speaks to every area of life. And our problem often is, is that we mentally, we don't mean to do this, but as Christians, we often relegate the Scriptures to a sort of a compartment, a religious compartment of our lives. And we fail to see that Scripture has implications across the board in every area. And because we do that, it sort of perpetuates what I call a religious ghettoism, where we Christians are always characterized as the the people off in the corner someplace. And we don't have any forthright challenge to the non-Christian. Can you imagine, in Paul's day, being around the Apostle Paul? I imagine it must have been quite an experience. I couldn't imagine people feeling that he was just sort of a religious person off on the right somewhere, they would have to recognize that his very presence was challenging to them, that if Paul were really right, this is this strange man running around the Mediterranean, if he was really right, then we're seriously wrong. There'd be that kind of tension. And this is why in this first few pages, it gets. It's, I know for some of you it may be a little abstract, but I'm trying to show you something here that will illustrate again and again and again. And so on the bottom of page four, that last paragraph, I want to read through that word by word because I want you to see what we're saying there. I conclude the matter by enlarging the previous statement and then it's all underlined. You can't say anything about anything without saying, by implication, something about everything. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you listen to, your, to a, say, a non-Christian in your family or in your neighborhood uh, as an exercise, just as a simple exercise, try this. Don't try to get impatient about confronting them with the gospel or sharing the gospel with them. Just back off and relax for a minute and draw them out. They say something, why do you believe it that way? Tell me about it. First of all, you're showing respect for them and how they think. But more importantly, you're learning something. And what you want to do is listen for things. And here are some of the things you want to listen for. What you want to listen for are statements that imply universal pronouncements. For example, well, I think this ought to happen. Ah, Now we've got an ethical judgment that implies an ethical standard. Listen for their ought. That's one of the key words in good conversation listening. Every time somebody uses ought or should, they are referencing some standard. And what we need to do before we put our feet in our mouth is just listen for a few minutes and find out where people are at. And this is one way of doing it, finding out where their oughts and their shoulds coming from. Where are their standards, of the right and wrong, coming from? What are these standards? It tells you a lot about how they think. Listen for the word A-L-L in a statement. Oh, all people know that. Or all the time. Listen for adverbs. All the time something is true, da 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 So if you can listen for A-L-L words, or W-H-O-L-E, whole world believes that, or words that denote time, that it always happens all the time. Universal. You know, and we all say this kind of in a humorous vein, whenever we get mad at somebody, but you always do that. And of course, we don't mean they always do it. But we get so mad that we pronounce the universal judgment upon them. So that's the way we are built to make those things. And those are those universal judgments slip out. And that's what I mean, the bottom page four, that inevitably conversation will be rooted upon a worldview that's lurking beneath the surface. And we have to find out what that worldview is. You don't have to be a have every piece of it in place. But for effective communication, you really should understand what that worldview is that's down there. Because if you don't, and you go to shoot, you haven't, haven't lined up the, the gun on the target. You're just shooting fruit off the top of the tree. You're not at the roots of the thing. And that's why oftentimes our, our conversations get so slippery and greasy. And we feel like after we spent 15, 20 minutes thinking this thing through and sharing it, we haven't got anywhere. And another thing to remember about what we're saying here is we can't get proudful about this because when we talk paganism, and tonight we're going to really see what paganism is all about by just looking at the text. But when we use the word paganism, what we're really talking about is the carnal mind, is the mind of the flesh. And apart from the Holy Spirit, we're pagans. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, Apart from our own merit, we don't have any merit. Only the Lord Jesus Christ's absolute righteousness. Apart from that and the Holy Spirit working on that basis, we are pagan. So it's not like we're sitting here throwing rocks self-righteously at people. That's not the spirit of this thing. All we're trying to do is identify where the problem is. We're not blaming someone because they have cancer, but we want to find out where is the cancer. That's the issue here. So when I talk about paganism versus the scripture, don't think of this as a rock-throwing contest. That's not what it's all about. It's simply to identify problems and find out where the scriptures collide with this. So summarizing the issue on page four, what we're saying is that any statement, any thought always comes out in language. And that language that language that it comes out in always shows at least two things. It shows a, a belief in absolute structures and categories. Every time somebody uses a noun, they're believing, they're building on the idea that there are classifications out there that we can talk about light and darkness, we can talk about red and green, we can talk about objects, boys, girls. We can talk about these things that are stable. We can also In order to use language, language is always referred in context to something. You learn something in context with something else. Then we wanted to conclude that early section by distinguishing between two words, neutrality and tolerance. Tolerance is scriptural. Because this is a day of an age of grace, we are tolerant. God is tolerant. Hasn't God withheld the judgment in order that men may come to repentance in Jesus Christ? Now, does that mean God condones sin? No. Does that mean He's tolerant for now? Yes. Tolerance is an axiom of grace. Tolerance is grace in action. So we can be tolerant. But where it gets greasy and slippery is when the idea of tolerance is subtly converted in our minds to neutrality. And we're saying here that if you believe what we've said so far, all language is non-neutral. It spreads up, it wells up a worldview, and all language is rooted in basic beliefs. And those basic beliefs cannot be neutral in the light of Scripture, because the carnal mind is enmity with God, is not subject to God, and it won't be. So what we're saying is there is no neutrality in the area of language and thought and so forth. Now, does that mean we have to look down our nose? No. All it's saying is that we live in an environment while we tolerate it, it doesn't mean we back off, get passive, and somehow accept that religion A and religion B and we lead everyone to believe that we Christians are setting aside our beliefs in order to be objective. I don't set aside my beliefs in order to be objective because if I set aside my beliefs, I couldn't be objective. I'm going to show you that apart from the Christian faith, there is no such thing as objectivity. In fact, there's no such thing as knowledge or truth in the true sense of the word. I remember one time I was selected for jury And the, the prosecutor or the defense attorney or something, and you know, how they always question you and you go through the jury. And the jury, I, this is about the fourth time I called for jury duty and didn't want to be on it. So I usually cut my hair short to make it look like I was some sort of a right-wing extremist or something. And that usually got rid of it. or when they, But this guy came to me that day and he asked, could you set aside your religious convictions for blah, 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 that we were oh, was on trial? And I'll never forget, the judge stopped him. He said, you have no right to ask any person in this courtroom to set aside their religious beliefs. So he chopped that lawyer off real fast. Because we, have, we do not wear triple six on our foreheads to condone attendance at something. That's not the name of the game. We will tolerate, but we are not neutral. Beware of that. It's a little game of words. Now, tonight, we want to spend all of our time, or most of the time, on our notes here. If you look at page six, there's one preliminary remark I want to make. Actually, two preliminary remarks on page six. And uh, there's big margins there. Feel free to mark them up, take notes, take notes on a piece of paper, or whatever. But on the middle of page six, I quote Dr. Alexander Heidel, who for many years taught at the University of Chicago. My point in Dr. Heidel's statement is that second paragraph in his statement, which has a little two on it, you'll see Dr. Heidel's statement. Now notice that his first statement is anuma Elish, that the pagan text we're going to look at, we're going to compare it with Genesis 1. Enuma Elish is the principal source of our knowledge of Mesopotamian cosmology. Cosmology, the belief system, the worldview of the ancients, or the worldview today of what the universe is all about. Enuma Elish is the principal source of our knowledge of Mesopotamia, that is, the people that lived back in Bible times that occupied the Mesopotamian Valley. Notice what he said. Yet Enuma Elish is not primarily a creation story at all. Some of you, I know some of the high school kids get into this and surely when you go to college, you get into it. Some day, some class, somewhere on the campus, you're gonna trot out Gilgamesh's epic. The Epic of Gilgamesh. And you'll be assigned an assignment to read sections of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And you'll learn about some other parts of Mesopotamian cosmology. But the interesting thing is neither Enuma Elish or the Epic of Gilgamesh are fundamentally creation stories. And that's an interesting observation. Why? Why don't we read a creation story? And the answer is, because the ancient man, like the modern man, whenever he deals with a profound topic, Enuma Elish, you see what the topic is. It's a justification for the domination of the city of Babylon in history. Or the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a, an adventure story. Whenever men deal with epical topics and themes, they will always bring up origins. Because they unconsciously are admitting that it's the origins that give the framework for the epic.
1: One of the greatest epic movies in the past decade, it had several sequels. It was a tremendous moneymaker. People loved it. It was Star Wars. Star Wars and all the things that went into that were basically what we would call epics. Epic in the sense it was Cosmic. It describes civilization by using the tool of science fiction. Writers can get outside civilization and look at it. In the movie Star Wars, what was the god substitute? The force that came up in that film again and again and again. Isn't it interesting? Not the person, but the force. What Lucas did was what every pagan writer or author does. He converted the personal sovereign God into an impersonal force. Paganism always does that. When they speak of the force, what did they talk about as far as light and darkness? They said, the good side of the force, the dark side of the force. There was always a good side to the force and a dark side to the force. In other words, the force is not only impersonal, but it's also good and evil. And that's what paganism always does to the gods and goddesses. Always does. Every century, every continent, every race, every people. Paganism always shows the same structure. It's universal. The bottom of page six, I want to point out something, a uh, second thing, before we get into
0: the comparisons. The paragraph that begins before hastily reading this text, would you watch that carefully with me? because I want to illustrate for you, as we teach through these classes, I want you to develop a habit, as a Christian, of using the Scripture in every subject you study. Don't ever leave the Bible on a shelf, divorced from whatever subject you study. I am reading a paper right now in theoretical mathematics about set theory. And the Christian Ph.D. who is writing that paper on set theory is a very godly man. And he is concerned about the system of logic being used in set theory as a Christian. And he wants to distinguish what he calls the Aristotelian logical system that's being used in set theory from a biblical system of logic. Now, you can't get much more abstruse than that. But you know what? The guy's a godly man. He shows that he believes in the lordship of Jesus Christ seriously enough to follow it in his professional area of study. Now, in full paragraph page 6, before hastily reading the text, we're going to get into the text in just a moment. You should start with a biblical framework as we learned part one, which we just summarized a few weeks ago. What do you know already about such a text from the biblical perspective? Now, watch what I am doing. Follow me here on the method. Watch my method. I am going to read a pagan text, I've got this new piece of material. I am a Christian. So what I am going to do is I'm going to take that pagan piece of literature. Before I even come to the pagan literature, I am going to prepare myself as a Christian. I am going to ask myself, what help can I get from God's Word ahead of even dealing with the details here? Does the Word of God set up the problem for me so I can save some time and not get sidetracked? So watch the paragraph. You should remember that the inhabitants of Babylon had to have come from Noah's sons. From this fact, you can expect that Enuma Elish writers may have had access to the creation traditions directly from Noah. They didn't have to get it handed down from Moses, right? If the Babylonians are post-flood people and all the people on this side of the flood came from one family on the boat, then doesn't it follow that in every tribe, in every culture, on the face of the planet, that we could have surviving memories of what Noah and his sons taught their sons? Could be. We're not saying there is in every case. But theoretically, we have the option, don't we? If we believe in Scripture. Now, hold the place in the notes on page 6 and turn over to page 8. Down the bottom of page 8, watch the opposite. This is the slick trick that we get sucked into in classrooms. And I want to help you prevent yourself from getting this slippery slope problem. On page 8, down the bottom, you see the word where it says similarities and so on. It begins, when modern scholars first began to analyze ancient pagan texts like Enuma Elish, many of them, now watch this sentence, watch this sentence. Many of them interpreted them from an evolutionary perspective. Now, are they being neutral? Where's the neutrality? They're not being neutral. They're bringing gobs of baggage from the worldview of evolution into the discussion of this piece of religious literature. Nobody's being neutral. There's no objectivity of an analysis here. They are approaching the text with the idea that it's bracketed by the history that they see in evolution. What does that mean? It means because of the similarities they saw, they thought they could see a gradual evolution from these earlier, more speculative polytheistic stories to the later, loftier, monotheistic Genesis. In other words, they made Genesis later, and they put these stories earlier. And the stories were messy and polytheistic, and Genesis was clean and monotheistic. So they said, aha, aha, see, there's evolution at work again. Out from chaos, we get a higher and higher level of religion. And for a hundred years, this has been taught in universities on every continent, that pagan literature gradually evolved into the Bible. And then I point out the reasons why we no longer believe that. Okay. Now let's go to the pagan literature. If you'll open your Bibles to Genesis 1, you should have done that exercise for tonight just to, to get some ideas and observations. What we want to do is train ourselves to observe the text of Scripture. Now what we want to do is ask two questions. First question is, what do you observe as you read through this text? Compare it side by side with the Bible. You've got Genesis 1 in one hand, You've got the pagan text in the other hand. Now just watch, because you hear this flippant remark: "Oh well, the Bible's full of paganism." I think when we get through this exercise, you'll be prepared next time your neighbor tells you that little one. As you read through here, and, and feel free to say what it, any observations you have as I call them out. What do you notice about the similarities between Genesis one and this Enuma Elish? text. I haven't given you the whole text. The whole text goes on for pages and pages. And everywhere you see the dashed line, what I did is I cut a section out, lots of things out. And I helped you, instead of going through four or five hundred lines of material, I pulled out for you the special lines. So look at the first block of lines there, uh, down to the first dash. Now, Numa Elish, by the way, you know what Numa Elish, that is what the language sounds like, when above. Ancient documents were named for the first two or three words. They didn't have titles. You know the Genesis in Hebrew? is isn't called Genesis. It's called Barith. Because Barith is the first word in beginning. And that's the way all the Bible was originally labeled on the basis of the first word or so of the text. So this was common. So enuma Elis just means when above. The heaven had not been named, so forth, so forth. Now just look at those lines, about eight lines there, nine lines. What do you see? Any semblances with what you're reading in Genesis 1? Okay, anybody from doing the exercise want to volunteer? In any observations? Yes. Okay, the triune deity is interesting observation. We'll have to come back to that. Notice the word in the first two clauses, heaven and earth. What do you notice in the first clause of Genesis? Heavens and earth. So, you've got the same theme, the same content. Notice the condition, and the, about the fifth line down, still mingle their waters together. And what do you read in verse 2 of Genesis? What being, what's there? Water. A chaos of water. Now, let's go to the next drop down to the, oh, all the way down to strengthen his hold upon the captive gods, return to Tiamat, and so forth cut the arteries, cause the north wind to carry it out of the places. Marduk put Timon open like a muscle into two parts, half of it set in place and formed the sky as a roof, crossbar, and a great structure, so forth, he established, namely the earth. Do you notice something about the sequence of actions here? Are they the same as Genesis 1? The heavens and the earth are a watery mass. In the Genesis text, the heavens and the earth are a watery mass. You find the sky is formed, and then the sky is formed in, in the Bible. And then you have the earth. Continuing on page 8 with Enuma Elish, what has happened is the stars are set up. Notice the stars are not set up in either tradition at the beginning. The stars are set up halfway through the narrative. That's exactly like the Bible. And they deter, define the divisions of the year. And you look at the fourth day of, of Genesis chapter 1, and you, what do the stars function? is that set the day apart and make the calendar. And then what's the last act in Enuma Elish? To make whom? To make man. What's the last act in Genesis 1? To make man. Okay? Now, if it's true that all this is wholesale, uh, you know, these guys in the ancient world just made this up, isn't it striking that we have different civilizations remembering the same order of events? Now, I wonder why that happened. Now, that's why I say when you come to literature like this as a Christian, you don't just walk into this thing cold. You say, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. What does the word of God say about this subject material? So you get your mind clicking and subordinate and humble before the Lord before you start your intellectual exercises. Spiritual preparation before intellectual thought. But we want to emphasize tonight the separation, the differences. Now, let's look at this text carefully. When the the gods are looked at, the triune, you have three gods. Here is Apsu, Mumu, and Tiamat. Now, carefully observe the text. And if I ask you the following question, how would you answer it? Looking at that text, how would you describe the gods if you were an artist? And had to draw them. If you were an artist, and I asked you to sketch a picture of what these gods look like based on this author's words, how would you sketch the appearance of these gods? Anyone?
1: Amorphous.
0: Amorphous. But you'd also have... Notice this phrase right here. They are amorphous, correct. And notice what else. Write that line there. They still mingle their waters together. Notice the pronoun, their waters. Now, this gets a little greasy, but I want you to notice something. These gods and goddesses are material. There's not any distinguishing between God and matter or God and anything else. It's their water deities. Their gods of chaos... But they have a material nature. We see more evidence of that later on. Notice down here. How do you interpret that line? Look at that one. They disturb the inner parts of Tiamat. In other words, after the gods were created, they were running around... The divine brothers gathered together. They disturbed Tiamat and assaulted their keeper. They disturbed the inner parts of Tiamat, moving and running about in the divine abode. There's a question mark in the text because it's hard to translate some of these words if you don't have a dictionary. Nobody left a dictionary from the, you know, so scholars have to kind of guess at what some of these words mean. When you read something like that, what does that tell you about how they were conceiving of Tiamat as some sort of a volume? And inside this space or inside this volume, these other gods are running around inside her. So she must be space. She must have volume. She's not only a water deity, but she appears to have volume in which the other gods are running around making big noise. All right, let's look further to see if, we can, if this bears out. As you go down through the text, look at this one. The Lord trod upon the hinder part of Helot. This is Marduk coming along. Because keep in mind, this text is really to justify the role of Babylon in history and who was the god of Babylon but Marduk. And so this is the quote proof of why Babylon was superior at that point in history. Marduk comes along and he beats up on her. With his unsparing club, he split her skull, cut the arteries of her blood, which by the way, that shows you how the Ninevites kill people in those days. A little personal and caused the north wind to carry it to out-of-the-way places. Marduk split Tiamat like a muscle into two parts. Half of her he set in place and formed the sky. And he fixed the crossbar and posted guards and commanded them not to let her waters escape. Look at the Genesis text, and do you notice any parallel there? In verse 9, for example, of chapter 1 of Genesis. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. What do you notice God doing there? Let the waters below the heavens be gathered together and let the dry land appear. And we have amplifications of that passage of how God put boundaries on it. Then the earth is established, and so on and so forth. One of the differences, one of the key differences that we want to understand tonight is this. In paganism, in all of paganism, not just this text, all of paganism... From Enuma Elish to Star Wars, it's the same idea. Gods are part and parcel of the cosmos. The cosmos itself is divine. There is no clear-cut distinction in paganism between God and what he creates. In the Bible, how many gods are there in Genesis 1? One God. There's a plurality of sorts, because he's spoken plural, which we'll get to someday. But the point is, there's one God, and he is distinct from all else. Reread Genesis 1, one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you read any analogous statement in any of the first four or five verses of Enuma Elish that corresponds to Genesis 1.1? Do you see any different, Any similarities? There's a vast difference between those two texts. The difference, as we said in the notes, is this. Get this idea. We'll come back to it again and again. The thing that makes the Bible anti pagan is the creator creature distinction. That is the most fundamental thing that we can learn from the entire Bible. God is not ever to be identified with water, trees, sky, and stars. God makes those, but those are not God. God is in no way ever to be distinguished with his cosmos. To fail to make that distinction is to become, at heart, an idolater. That is idolatry, and it's rebellion spiritually. So right at the beginning, we see a a clear-cut distinction. Is the Bible an ancient book? Yes, it is. Is the Numa Elish an ancient text? Yes, it is, of course. Does the Bible have paganism in it? No. The Bible is anti-pagan. This literature is both ancient and pagan. The Bible is ancient and anti-pagan. So, again, in classroom discussions or in your reading, don't confuse ancient with paganism, and slurp it together and come out with the idea the Bible has mythology and paganism in it. Careful. No, no, no. Uh uh-uh. You just saw here a very clear distinction about the way the gods are treated here and the way the God of Scripture appears in the Bible. Any of you notice anything else different as you observe these texts and work through some of the exercises? The question is, you notice the gods get chaotic and there's struggles among them. And quite obviously, this is a a faint memory and a screwed up version of what? The rebellion of Satan against God. But what is different is, is that in this case, the rebels win. Do you see the theme? In this case, the young god Marduk rises up and he crushes Tiamat, the creator. He rises up in his pride and his power, and he becomes as God, and he triumphs over all. So you have an opposite theme going on in pagan literature, which leads us to the second profound difference between pagan literature and the Bible. Not only is the creator-creature distinction missing, but we also have the problem that personal sovereignty, if you turn to page 11 in the notes, the difference, the second great difference, is who is ultimately in charge in Genesis 1? Who has unchallenged control over everything? God speaks and it is done. What is going on in the pagan literature? You have to have a knockdown, drag out to find out who's going to win. So ultimately, here's the question that paganism can never answer. And it's a very strong question. And if you'll understand this question, maybe mark it in the the margin. I I mentioned this. If you look on page 11, the third paragraph after two, where it's the paragraph that begins. Observe carefully what is going on here. If today Marduk beats up all the other gods, what about tomorrow? Will another god younger and stronger than Marduk rise up and triumph over him? On the polytheistic basis of Anuma Elish, what assurance would a Babylonian have about the future? Who is in charge in the final analysis? If you lived in Babylon and your welfare politically and economically depended literally upon a god like Marduk, can Marduk predict what's going to happen 2,000 years ahead if Marduk is insecure? You see, the problem in polytheism is that there's no God who's ever secure. No God can ever be sure that out of this universe there won't arise a God that will in turn defeat Him. And so the paganism, as I point out in the next paragraph, the pagan mind, when faced with this dilemma, usually tries to appeal to something behind the gods because obviously, a person may be a pagan, but still they want order in their life. Well, how do I get order in my life? And in this... Headless horsemen that I've got that are running the universe. Well, the order comes in in a sneaky way. The pagan mind, when faced with a dilemma, usually tries to appeal to something behind the gods. Note in Enuma Elish the the, the line that reads, Marduk took from Kingu the tablet of destinies. Whoever holds the tablet of destinies seems to be able to reign. The Greeks and the Romans later took that Tablet of Destinies idea and they brought up the, the word, the Latin word that we still use, which is fate. F A T E. Fate. And if those of you who read ancient Greek drama, you know that there was the problem of the fate. The fate seems to determine. So you have the gods running around, but in the background you have this quiet, mysterious fate. Now I'm showing my age, but if any of you remember the first great science fiction film that was really done in an epic proportion that became the grandfather film of, of Star Wars and everything else that followed. And the theme at the beginning of this film, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It was used in commercials every once in a while. 2001, A Space Odyssey. Remember that film? Now, those of you who remember that, it was very well done. Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the script that was used by Kubrick, to make that film, was considered the father of science fiction. And, I mean, long before Star Trek. Star Trek and these other things just grew out of Arthur C. Clarke and his, his work. Well, in that film, if you can recall, there appears at the beginning of the film and at the end, at the beginning of the film, there's this ape. They zero in this, this great crescendo of music and this ape throws the stick up in the air. And of course what Clark is saying is there's the evolution of of man is beginning now and the ape has just got his brand new tool. And the rest of the story gets into the fact that the tool becomes the computer, the computer begins to take things over and so forth and so on. But to get symmetry at the beginning and the end of the film, what he did was he had this spinning tablet cut out so it looked like the tablets that Moses took down from Mount Sinai. And this tablet just sort of appears at the beginning of the film. And then at the end of the film, it shows up again. Now, what do you suppose that is? It's the same pagan theme. Fate. Somehow, the computers, somehow the space station, somehow the ape, somehow the stick, are all controlled by that tablet that just appears and then disappears. Appears. And then at critical junctures of human history, the tablet's there. So why does the pagan mind revert to this? It reverts to it because it's got to find order somewhere. Now we want to summarize what these, this is. And let's, I've got an overhead transparency here that I want to kind of contrast these ideas. This was done for a debate last year, but here's, in a nutshell, the difference. Study this carefully for a few minutes. Well, on the left side, I really should have put that on the right side, the view is, yes... There is an ex nihilo creator. Ex nihilo creator. Why do we say ex nihilo? Anyone know? It's a Latin phrase. It is used as a technical term to define the Christian faith over against paganism. Why must we have ex nihilo and just not creator? Ex nihilo means out from nothing, it means that God created without help from something else. It wasn't God and the universe. It is God and God alone. And that's why salvation, when it comes back down, this is how this reverberates down through, through history to our own personal spiritual life. This is not abstract philosophy I'm teaching you tonight. This is why the heart of the spiritual life is to come into fellowship with God and God alone. Not God and something, God and this, God and that. It's God and God alone. Why? Because He and He alone is the creator of the universe. Nothing created can satisfy the human heart. Nothing. God and God alone. It falls naturally out of this premise of the ex nihilo creator. Notice what else. Down at the bottom, I've put two words, hyphenated. Very important terms because they summarize something about God here. I've said that God is infinite personal. Now, you can call it other names. The reason I'm putting those two nouns together, or adjectives, is because God is infinite, that's his creator-creature distinction, but he's also a person. He's not an it, he's not a force, he's not a tablet of destinies, he's not blind fate. he is a person. And that has tremendous and powerful repercussions, which we are only beginning to see tonight as we go on further and study the text of Genesis. And really think through what we're reading in Genesis. This is a powerful challenge to everything in the modern world. It is a cosmic statement that ultimately, in back of everything, there is no such thing as faith. There's the personal decrees of the personal God. That's what's back behind everything. It is a person that drives the universe, not an it. Now, on the other side, we have no ex nihilo creator. And therefore, we have this other doctrine. The opposite to the creator-creature distinction. This is the creator-creature distinction here. The opposite to that doctrine is this doctrine. See, I said there's no neutrality. No neutrality. A person is going to believe one or the other. There's no other option. Continuity of being means that the universe basically is all one. Matter, immaterial, dogs, cats, trees, rocks, and so forth. That is the doctrine of the continuity of being. If you turn to page 10 in your notes, it's sometimes known as the chain of being or the continuity of being. Which you'll read in the handout for next week a little bit more about that. But if you look at the paragraph that begins, over against the Bible's creator-creature distinction, fourth paragraph down page 10 paganism insists upon the unity of the creator and creations gods men animals and rocks are all part of the same existence or being this is the doctrine of the chain of being a doctrine you will find lurking in all forms of paganism from ancient times through new testament times by the way one entire book in the new testament is written against this idea you know what the book is it's the book of Colossians. And Colossians was directed against this because the heresy that Paul had to deal with was Gnosticism. And Gnosticism believed that you had God, emanations from God, man, so forth, so forth, so forth. It was all a gradation, sort of like a spectrum of light. No separation. And then, of course, cosmic evolution we'll get into uh, for, for next week. Now the next paragraph. Watch this one, because here's a sneaky little corollary that's the twin brother of of chain of being idea implied by the continuity of being idea and overtly present in some pagan origin myths is the concept of spontaneous generation since the universe basically is of one kind everything within it differs only in degree thus the universe has the power to bring forth life from non-life all by itself man is just part of nature continuity of being all this has happened happens in every century every pagan idea every continent every language and every race doesn't make any difference. We'll always follow that, that agenda. And we'll give you references. You'll, you'll see gobs of references that I stuck in the notes for next time to substantiate that. We've got this difference, and again, I want to emphasize by turning to a passage I asked in the exercise if you look at, and that is 1 Kings 22. So, turn to this odd passage that most people, really almost probably, some Christians have read their Bibles a lot, haven't noticed this one. I happen to come across it. When I was doing some Hebrew work a number of years ago, and it blew me away when I first got into it. And what really blew me away was when you read what some commentators say about it. Chapter 22, verse 19. First Kings, chapter 22, verse 19. Keep in mind Anuma Elish. Okay. Let's go back to Anuma Elish again. The text and all the running around that's going on, fighting among the gods. Look at what happens here. Isn't this odd? And Micaiah said, Hear therefore the word of the Lord. I I saw the Lord standing on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramath Gilead? This is an evil act. And one said this and another said that. There was a discussion in this council. And a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said, how? I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Notice, by the way, the ability of that spirit to fracture himself and appear in many different people at the same time as all the same spirit. I will go out and be a single deceiving spirit in the mouth of, plural, all his prophets. And then he said, you are to entice him and prevail, go and do so. Now, what do you notice about the conduct of that meeting that is missing in this mess? God is sovereign. The spirits go where they are told to go by God and God alone. Do you see the greatness of God appearing here? Sometimes it it takes a step outside of the scripture to bounce off and come back into the scripture to appreciate scripture. And what I'm trying to do tonight is take you into the theological and spiritual milieu of paganism so that you will then come back to the scriptures and say, wow. You see, the God of scripture is always in control. We may not like that. We may argue with that. But you cannot deny that the God of scripture is always in control. That's the fierceness of the God of the scriptures. This is what is deeply offensive to the pagan mind. Let's turn to Isaiah 46.10. We'll get into a lot of verses in the next chapter. we we'll deal with the attributes of God, which we're going to study. But in Isaiah 46, there's a passage here that is a ringing opposite note to all of paganism. Isaiah 46.10. Isaiah, in this section, in the 40s, just kind of, if you mark this in your notes sometime you want a spiritual charge in your batteries, Uh, just write in your notes a little uh, reference to the Isaiah 40s, 40 to 49, that whole section of Isaiah. Because Isaiah was teaching his generation how to survive. He knew that nation was going down. He knew that he was called by God to prepare for judgment. And the way people prepared for judgment was to prepare their hearts with a deeper personal relationship so when that crashing wave of judgment came in, they could stand against it, the rock that would not be moved. And what Isaiah ministered to in his generation were people that were going all around Robin Hood's barn, worrying about this, doing this, upset about that. And he said, folks, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, what you folks have to do is get straightened out in your theology of who and what God is. So, he is filled in the Isaiah 40s with these things. So, let's look at verse 10 of chapter 46. Now, think about what you just read about Marduk, Tiamat, Absul and Mumo. Contrast those deities with what you see and read in verse 10. The God, our God, declares the end from the beginning... From the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. You say, well, how egotistical. Not for God. See, egotism for us is bad because we're creatures. But that's okay for God to do that because he's God. When we do that, we're acting like we're God. That's what makes it egotism. We can't do that, but God can. Now, do you notice this parable in verse 10? Do you see anywhere, of course, we have an abbreviated version, but I can assure you, that had I given you all of Enuma Elish, you would never find any of the gods, Tiamat included, able to declare the end from the beginning. Nor would you ever read any of them daring to say those last two clauses in verse 10. My purpose will be accomplished. You never read that Marduk saying that. You never read Tiamat saying, I will accomplish all my good pleasure all the way down the corridors of time. It's missing. Because the pagan gods aren't big enough to make those kind of statements. As we come down to the end here, we're going to maybe go back a little bit, but I want to, to summarize what we're saying tonight by setting paganism off now from biblical faith. And we've talked about paganism. We said there's no neutrality. We said that all men have this need to know. We have said that the heart is not neutral. That words have to be known in context. But when we come back, ultimately the bottom line is there are only two contexts, and one is the creative creature context, and the other is the continuity of being context, and every man is in one or the other. Every man understands the world in terms of that view or that view. There may be different names to it. Yes, there are different names. There may be different ways. We're going to see how you may talk about this in equations, in scientific language, but still after all is said and done, you're still winding up in one of these two camps. Always. These are fundamental distinctions. We as Christians must learn in our day and this is what makes it so hard, as Oriental religions particularly are invading us, the New Age. What makes it so hard to deal with is making this distinction. All of the New Age, all of the Oriental religions believe in the continuity of being. I've got quotes in the notes handing out tonight. You'll see them. They all believe in the continuity of being. They all believe it's just a relative difference between God and man, if there is a God. God is the superman who is more quantitatively, he's stronger than we are, maybe infinitely stronger than we are, infinitely more wise than we are, but there's grades and shades of difference between him and us. In the scriptures, he is totally other. He is totally by himself. He is not in any way dependent upon the creature. So, here's way we would summarize the point. How do we as Christians describe our God? We describe, and doesn't mean you have to describe it this way to every person you meet. This is for our own notes to think through, to meditate upon. We believe in an infinite, personal God who is pre-existing the universe, pre-existing, self-contained, We mean self-contained because he doesn't need anything outside of himself. There is a phrase that is used theologically to describe self-contained. And it comes out of a Greek expression. It's called aseity. We'll talk about that when we get into the attributes of God. Aseity means that God is not dependent on his creation whatsoever. Now, there's an interesting corollary, and I want to take just two minutes at the end here on this corollary. One of the problems we are going to face is the Christian church in the United States in the last part of the 20th century, in the first part of the 21st century, Well, I've seen it in the jails, I've seen it in the penitentiary, and it's the coming new wave. And the new wave is Islam. Islam is not like the Oriental religions. It's not like the Oriental religions. What Islam is, is much. it has a view of God much like Jehovah's Witnesses. In that, God is a solitary creator. Allah is a solitary p- person. Now, think a moment. From everything we know by analogy with God, what is it about a person that is always incomplete? What did God say after he made Adam? After he made everything without sin, he made that one statement. What was it? Well, before he said that. Well, in Genesis 2. Yeah. He said, It is not good that man be alone. And in that, there's a fundamental observation about person. There's no such thing, the Bible knows no such thing as solitary personality. That personality is corporate. It's something that demands another person. And this is why that Christian faith insists on a plurality of persons in God. If God is not multipersonal, here's the problem that comes up, and Islam has never solved this problem. If you have a solitary being, the solitary being has to create to have another object to talk to, to fellowship with. He doesn't have fellowship with himself, not in a corporate social sense. It is the triune God of Christianity. Where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit commune among themselves. What did Jesus in the priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane... Do you remember a phrase in that priestly prayer that Jesus... Evidently, either the Holy Spirit taught the disciples this, or somebody had a tape recorder while he was praying. And when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he let slip a phrase. And that little phrase he let slip allows us to penetrate eternity past. In one little glimpse, we can go all the way back in time to before the universe. Because Jesus said in his prayer in Gethsemane, Father, before the world was made, you loved me. I talked with you. We had fellowship together. What is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about the triune, multiple-person God of the Christian faith. This is not something to be ashamed of, people. This is part of the logical structure of our faith. We can stand up and be proud of this. The counterfeits to the Christian faith always get slippery here. They always try to deny the Trinity and they wind up with a solitary monotheism. And a solitary monotheism has to have a God who creates or he's a lonely God. Christianity alone has a self-contained God because he doesn't need to create to have fellowship. The Trinity was perfectly at home among themselves. The Father had eternal fellowship with the Son. This is a thing we get in more in the New Testament, not here. But we conclude tonight with that statement because if you look at the text carefully, if you turn in conclusion to Genesis chapter 1, there's a mysterious phrase there that has long troubled readers of Genesis. And if you look at it, they've tried to explain this away with all kinds of gimmicks, but this text still stands. Genesis chapter 1, Verse 26. What is the pronoun? What is the number of the pronouns in verse 26? Singular or plural? Plural. Now, you can argue about the Trinity not being here explicitly. We'll talk about that later. But do you notice the plurality? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Who's the our? Who, who's the they? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you read the Genesis text carefully for that exercise, you saw the Father, and you saw the Spirit mentioned. I wonder how many saw the second personality mentioned. We're going to deal with that, and the, tr- the hint there is going to be, we're going to look at the Apostle John's interpretation of Genesis. Because John chapter 1 is the Apostle John's meditation upon Genesis chapter 1. If you will read John chapter 1 and then go back and read Genesis chapter 1 and ask yourself, how would John have interpreted Genesis 1? You will discover an amazing thing about Jesus Christ. We won't tell you tonight. Father, thank you for this time this evening. As we come to the Scriptures and see who you are, in the light of what the world has to offer in contrast, we are humble and we're thankful. We're thankful, Father, that we have a majestic God who deserves our attention, our praise, and our prayers. We thank you that you are independent, that we have a God that does not need us, but who is strong enough to support us, in every aspect of our lives. And we're thankful that you took it upon yourself to visit this planet, die for our sins, to get involved and walk around so that you are not a remote God. And we are thankful because of the Holy Spirit taking the result of Jesus Christ's work on the cross and applying it in our lives. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.